0: Hey folks, thanks for joining us to talk about some utility news today. I assume you're a utility wonk, otherwise, there's no way you would have ever found public power underground. And if you are, then I think that today's stories are going to resonate with you because if you've been involved in the industry you've probably gotten the feeling that the status quo is probably the one thing that's not going to keep happening in the future. And we got a slate of stories and hot takes that I think reinforce that. And I think that that notion is unsettling and exciting at the same time. One of the things you'll hear about me in a few minutes is I started in this industry as a meter reader for Portland General Electric. And When I got that job, the reason I wanted that job is so that I could hopefully be where I am now, working on all these things that are so difficult and so exciting, because I thought that this was an amazing space to work in. And I think that that's true. Uh, That being said, the reason a lot of these things are changing is because things are getting difficult, right? Things are hard. Uh, and, And the stories today, I think, will show that, and hopefully the discussion will help you know, help us think about things in a way that we can kind of balance two of what I think are the the most amazing things about this industry. Um, One is the innovation, because the fact that we have this amazing utility industry, I think is really impressive. The other is our really effective planning and the way that we can be conservative in a way that that really makes things work. And I think that for that reason, as, as an industry, we were able to build the largest engineering marvel in the history of humanity and keep it going for decades and decades and decades and decades. So I'm excited to see how we continue to work through all these things. We're going to talk about a lot of external factors, including wildfire and the way that climate change is manifesting and how that leads to everybody talking about decarbonizing the the energy supply. But what does that mean in terms of reliability? What does that mean in terms of energy security? And what does that mean in terms of the investments you'd have to make to actually make things work? And also just talk about our relationship with electricity. So, when we're talking about about all that i hope that there's a level of excitement uh for a lot of people to balance out all of the sort of doom and gloom that i think tends to be uh an easy place to go to when when you think about all this change uh i think that we're in the middle of doing a lot of things that are really gonna help address these issues and i think that a lot of these issues are some of the but like they're at the they're at the nexus of some of the most important things that are uh changing in our society. And so with that, I hope we can work together. I hope we can talk together about how to make things a little bit better. But in the meantime, let's talk about some news and stuff.
1: Woo! I'm excited. Give me some applause, Luigi. You got applause on the soundboard, Luigi? I am pumped up and excited. <laughs> First cold open, the first cold open, Russ, and you nailed it. Got us excited. Oh, All right. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's go. Uh, let's turn our mics on, Jason and Luigi, and take it away, Russ.
0: We started in hard times to break. Welcome to Public Power away. Underground, Public if Power's premier infotainment program, program that covers public power and public power adjacent news from a power the department's the perspective. Also, we focus on alliteration. I'm Russ Manifel, the Acting Director of Market Initiatives for BPA, former Acting Manager of the Slice product, and among other things, a former meter reader for PGE, and today's celebrity guest host, the Daniel LaRusso of Public Power.
2: i the editor of California Energy Markets and this week's podcast ambassador News Data.
1: I'm the creative director of Public Power Underground, manager of Klotskin IPUD's power department, and producer, not producer for today's recording. I left that in from last week. I'm just the manager of the power department. Yes, take it away, Luigi.
3: And this is Luji Zilin, data specialist for Klotskin IPUD and today's producer.
1: Thanks for being the producer today, Luji. I don't have to do it. Russ, where's the, where's the headband? The Danny LaRusso of Public Power.
0: Yeah, I know. I uh, left you. <sighs> i i I find all sorts of ways to disappoint people and the headband and the bandana is is one of them but uh you know i i've cut my hair in the last month or so it still is pretty long actually but the the bandana though it became a calling card of mine really was a utilitarian thing which you know i think that as Americans, we should recognize the utilitarian benefits of a bandana, but uh yeah, I don't I don't I don't rock the bandana so much anymore, but I hope the joke still works.
1: Yeah, it worked for me. All right. Well, so I was curious in your intro, I actually didn't know what to put for your permanent placement. Like what what are you if all of the acting's fall away? What are you?
0: I think I would be the EIM, an EIM project manager okay so that's um, like that was like a permanent role i think that was the permanent role it'd be interesting exactly where that what that would mean at this point in time uh but uh yeah yeah i think that's where I, what i would revert to but i'm not 100 sure honest i think yeah it's
1: great you're, you're confident in yourself you know that you're not you're gonna succeed no matter everybody, what everybody everybody
0: should bet on themselves right that's
1: right bet on yourself Okay. This is fun. Uh, Jason, can you hear us? You're coming through, uh, your, your phone's internet. Are you there? No, nope, I don't know that Sounds we got like Jason. a little
2: bit of a lag.
1: Yeah. It's a lot of a lag.
2: Uh, maybe should I come back with audio only?
1: Yeah. Why don't you come back with audio only? Okay. Jason is going to rejoin us with audio only. We're going to carry this today, Russ.
0: Okay. Okay. This is season four, episode five on today's recording. We discuss all sorts of energy news, including electric utilities, expanding broadband, Nayruk, the council's power plan, a garbage story, and reports of Paul reporting and a bunch of witty banter in between.
1: You know what? I got to re-edit. I got to edit these after we actually pick our stories. None of the, like two of these things apply. It's my fault. That's what happens. Russ, you did a great job in your monologue actually talking about what we're going to talk about.
0: (laughs) So yeah, uh, (laughs) make do with it what you will. So um, it'll be
1: fine. It'll be fine. Jason here. Yeah. All
0: right. uh, Before we get started, Jason is going to read a quick word from our presenting sponsor.
2: The presenting sponsor of Public Power Underground is the Energy Authority, The Energy Authority is a nonprofit energy portfolio management company owned by public power entities like us. TEA's mission is to help clients maximize the value of their assets and meet their power supply goals. TEA does this by providing expertise in energy trading, advanced analytics, renewable solutions, and a whole lot more. Over 60 public power utilities have partnered with TEA to tackle their energy future. So if you are looking for an energy authority to partner with in navigating the uncertain future of our industry... Visit teainc.org dot org to learn more. That's teainc.org, The Energy Authority. They're as underground as it gets.
0: There we go. Uh, <laughs> we're starting this week, as is our want, checking in on power market indicators in the Northwest with our first segment, Aaron Reports with Paul reporting.
1: Russ, this is my first time doing Aaron Reports. This is my first time reading it. I'm under a lot of pressure. I hope you will be my emotional support here. <laughs>
0: You okay look like you're under a lot of pressure. I just yeah, you know that.
1: Very, I'm very nervous. If Aaron listens to this, I don't want her to be disappointed. Okay. This is Aaron Reports with Paul Reporting, where we try to get up to speed on Northwest market indicators for February 21st, 2022. I'm Paul Dockery, and I've got your market update for the week. October through September flows at the Dallas for water year 2022 are currently forecast to be 93% of normal. And April through September is at 94%. That is a big drop from last time reported on Public Power Underground. Outflow at the Dallas peaked over the past week at 22, uh, 220 KCFS on February 18th. Day ending elevation at Grand Coulee yesterday was 1,266 feet. And peak outflow this past week was 179 KCFS on February 16th. Spot market power in the Northwest for delivery today is at $27.75, with gas at $4.15 per MMBTU, translating to a spark spread of zero, no spark spread, and a heat rate of 6,700. Russ, we're going to just going to do this live. What does it mean when a spark spread uh, is zero at a heat rate of 6,700? Does that mean that the indicator for how you calculate spark spread is exactly the heat rate of 6,700?
0: I think that's what it means, but I might not. I think Aaron would be the one to ask.
1: Yeah, we'll have to get Aaron on here next time and talk about that, or somebody from TEA, one of our sponsors. It's the term markets really gone. meaningful. and it does, and, uh, yeah. It seems incredibly meaningful. In term markets, balance of the month for February, heavy load at Mid-Sea is trading at $45.05 per megawatt hour. Mid-Sea heavy load for March is at $33. March gas at Sumas is trading at $4.07, translating to a heat rate of 8,100 B2 per kilowatt hour. August power at Mid-Sea is trading at $163 per megawatt hour with Sumas gas at $4.88, translating to a heat rate of over 33,400. Wowza! Checking in on G's a- aggregated basin data on for snow in the region, the snow water equivalent for BC Hydro generation Basin is 1019% of normal, for Mid-Sea it's 6- 92% of normal, and aggregating all the snow in the Columbia River Basin that'll flow through Bonneville Dam, they estimate there's 104% of normal snow blanket. Spending a beat at Bonneville's balancing authority, peak load this past week was at 8,152 uh, February 17th at 7.30 a.m. During load's peak, hydro generation was 12,354. If you just flip that and it was 12,345, could, could you have done that, Russ? That would have been really cool. It would have been I'll, super I'll call cool. him next, yeah. Okay, okay. Wind gen was 2,211. Conventional units were at 419. And nuclear was a steady 1,161 all units in megawatts. ENSO for November-December-January period sits at negative 1 Oceanic Nino Index. The Multivariate ENSO Index for December-January is negative 1.02, and the SST Consolidated Nino forecast indicates that La Nina conditions are likely to continue through Spring 2022. This week in NOAA climate forecast, the 6-10 to day outlook has temperature ranging from above to below normal. It's all over the place. the precipitation is expected to be below normal for most of the region the 30 and 90 day outlooks indicate temperatures probably below normal for almost the entire region and above normal precipitation for the normal region which are normal la niña indicators but we keep seeing in the near-term range this not this weather that is not consistent with what we expect out of a la niña the out, the long-term forecasts keep expecting that la niña to have an uh, impact on our uh, weather systems for the future. Special thanks to Ansuji for letting us use their dashboards and thanks to Luigi for compiling this week's report. That's all we've got for this update.
0: And uh I think my hottest take on that is that I woke up to snow this morning and uh that's probably a signal for, yeah. for things, that, things that are going to happen.
1: You think it's a signal or just some noise?
0: Well, I don't know. Um, I I wonder if people thought it was a signal because the 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 day had trading was pretty high before, right? And I think that we came out of a pretty temperate period, and and uh, yeah, it's pretty pretty cold and rainy, and and somewhat snowing the last couple of days.
1: Yeah, a story that we are not covering, but I did uh, cross the energy Twitter uh panel was was uh it was like a pun on polar uh like what do you call it when you jump into a, a polar plunge polar plunge was, yeah yeah it was like uh the the northern part of the us is doing an involuntary polar plunge it was a oh. terrible headline i didn't click on it i don't i don't respect that i don't respect yeah
0: everyone. yeah,
1: yeah. is maybe too punny for me
0: they're asking they're asking us to meet us more than halfway yeah in that situation
1: yeah, but there is a lot of, there's an incoming cold uh, into the northern part of the entire U.S.
0: Yeah. So,
1: yeah. Anything for you, Jason, on on what's going on in the markets?
2: I haven't seen much in markets. We're due for snow here, too, uh, here in Nevada City and up on the mountain about a foot. Uh, the snowpack has been really depleted since our big uh, storm in mid-January, so it's been very concerning we really happy to see some, some activity on that. We've got about another five weeks to turn things around. Otherwise, it's going to be a really nasty fire season.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's nice to see some snow. Nice to see some water on the mountains. Oh, yes. Okay, take it away, Ross.
0: Okay, thanks for the report, Paul. Uh, next up is our weekly walk through public power and public power adjacent news in a segment we like to call Public Power Desktop. Luigi, give us a typewriter. Typewriter, please. And take it away, Jason.
2: Okay, Wednesday, February 16th, Energy News Digest from a friend of the underground, Joel Meyer, covered a bunch of great broadband news that got us excited. Featured in the Energy News Digest was coverage of a roundtable at Mason PUD, number three about rural broadband. Included in the roundtable was the Undersecretary for Rural Development for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Zocchil Torres-Small, that first name is spelled X-O-C-H-I-T-L, hopefully I was close. Undersecretary Small states on the video that, quote, they're working hard to make sure that no matter where you live, you have access to good, reliable internet, unquote. That's kind of uh, ironic today for me. Uh, Also shared in NWPPA's Energy News Digest last week was a story on Fierce Telecom's website on how rural electric co-ops are the fastest-growing group of broadband providers. National Rural Electric Cooperative Association CEO Jim Matheson told Fierce that, quote, co-ops are uniquely positioned to, to deliver service to parts of the country that big incumbents either can't or don't want to reach. That's in part because they already have a deep relationship with their customer owners and because they're nonprofits, which tend to take a longer term view of infrastructure investments since they're not under pressure from shareholders to generate short term returns. But it's also because many co-ops already have middle mile fiber assets they can tap for last mile expansions to deliver retail broadband, unquote. For more, you should definitely subscribe to NWPPA's Energy News Digest, the links to the articles will be in the show notes.
1: Jason and Russ, you both subscribe to the Energy New Di- News Digest, right?
0: I do not actually. What? No. Yeah, I will. I I, uh, I I already decided to change that.
1: Yeah. Right. If you need me to forward it to you, Joel makes it pretty easy. If you have any if you have one of the editions, you can cl- you can click and it's super easy. I'll forward it on to you, Russ. Jason, you're on yeah. it, right?
2: I'll look into it. I, oh, I, you I, aren't I, either. No. Oh, okay, Paul.
1: this is value I am providing to you. Um, as everybody knows, I am deeply invested in rural broadband. Um, it's less frustrating to me now because I come to work in Clatskanie kind of PD's office, which has good internet. But at home, I do not have good internet. I have DSL that uh, is very susceptible to my neighbors' streaming stuff. Um, so I'm, I'm very much watching this. Also, I wanted to note on this story. I talked to Bear Prairie about what some of th- what they're doing in their service territory with like fiber expansion and fiber to homes, that last foot uh, fiber. And it is, we. I, I need to get him on here because uh, they're doing some innovative stuff there at Idaho Falls. Idaho
0: Falls, yeah. yeah. I'd like to hear it. And and I think, uh, I, I like these stories. It, uh, no. Not talked about a whole bunch, and, and I but I think that it, it is really analogous to the way all of our entities were created, right? Uh, almost you know over the last 30, 40, 75 years, etc., which is finding the best way to, to provide services that have become essential for people, right? And so we're yeah, going man. through a lot of the same things with it, with a different service. And so uh good to see focus on it. And I think, uh you know, it seems like there's just a really wide disparity as well, because a lot of the backbone of this infrastructure is there and I'll, I'll probably get the place wrong, but I remember before I was able to get gigabit uh internet, I knew like people I worked at, I think, I think I think Shalane had it, right? Because, you know, they, have all of this this infrastructure for the electric system that requires or relies on on fiber optic and so it was it i don't know what they did to make that happen but you know when actually they were able to get gigabit internet way before i was in in north portland but at the same time like five years ago we were uh trying to get internet at my wife's grandmother's place, in odell oregon which is in the hood river electric co-op and uh you know they they wanted to do things but it's just tough right like they hadn't had a chance to make those investments yet and so you're trying like all these sort of like satellite or you know like wearing a tinfoil hat like whatever you can do to try to get enough internet to make things work and uh you know uh, getting everybody like on an equal footing or like a roughly equal footing, I think is super important. So like, I I like those stories.
1: Yeah. About you, Jason, you're experiencing
2: some, some data issues today. Yeah. Our area can be sketchy. Um, It's just the way it is, you know, pretty, pretty rural area here in Nevada city. And um, you know, as far as 5g, we had resistance to 5g from our local elected officials for various reasons, uh conspiratorial reasons, so yeah, definitely an issue. Happy to see people working on it
1: so in uh it's it's Nevada City, right i, I mm-hmm. yeah, so do you have broadband to Nevada City, or is it dSL
2: uh I don't it's limited, so yeah, okay. yeah, it's limited,
1: yeah, and because you, your home is then outside in Nevada City, do you have DSL at your home or are you off sell? Service right. for internet.
2: Well, this is interesting. Where I live, I have. I know that's why I asked. I knew it would be <laughs> interesting. I have no phone, or I have no uh, mobile phone access at all up in the mountains. Do you have? So.
1: Do you have a desk phone?
2: I'd have to go knock on the main house. Yeah, it's crazy, but um, you're a news reporter that does yeah. not have a phone at his house. Yes.
1: Yeah.
0: What? But do you, you know in what? a situation where there's such a thing as the main house. You're right. Um, yeah. That's anachronistic. I like that.
2: <laughs> it is. It's an off the grid property. I've talked about this before. Nice.
0: I, but, I, I um, didn't hear that. That's exciting. All I, right.
1: is, I guess I have some like pre-conceived bias that even an off the grid property probably has like phones. Uh, <sighs> no, apparently not.
2: Yeah. Not on not my setup. And um, yeah, you know what? I, I really recommend not having internet at home. I really do. Because- I believe that. Yeah. I'm able to turn off. I pick up books. I I do other things, and you know I'm I'm online ten hours a day in my office. So I, I really treasure my my quiet time up there. So yeah,
1: no. What can I, what can I say? I, I'm <laughs> learning so much about you every time we record an episode.
2: I'm I'm the mountain man.
1: So yeah, yeah. yeah it's,
2: it's remote. It's remote where I live. So yeah. um, that's yeah. just the way it goes. Okay, take it away. You ready,
1: Russ?
0: Okay, okay, Luigi, we're ready for the typewriter. Well done. All right.
1: Leadership of the California Independent System Operator, which administers the Western Energy Imbalance Market, as well as the EIM governing body, approved on February 9th phase one of the resource efficiency test rule changes. The proposal will be submitted to the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission for approval. The resource sufficiency test is designed to to prevent balancing areas leaning on others, a situation that could arise when a BA does not have sufficient capacity to meet its own demand, requiring it to rely on EIM transfers. The proposed new rules include changes to the capacity test to more accurately count a balancing authority's available supply, changes to the flexible ramping test, which measures a BA's ramping capability and more accurate counting of imports and exports. The rules did not pass without controversy. Some current and future EIM participants, such as the Bonneville Power Administration, say the new rules regarding the resource efficiency test need more work because of certain inaccuracies. One problem? Uh, noted in this story, is that current calculations of historic net load uncertainty and inter-tide deviations have been determined to provide inaccurate indicators of future uncertainty. The news was covered by The Underground's own Jason Fordney in the February 11th edition of California Energy Markets, who we have on the pod. Uh, and Russell Manafell <laughs> is uh, the EIM project manager for Bonneville, which may have some insights into this topic. Russ
0: i think i'm in an emeritus position in in regards to that um yeah this is like on so speaking for myself here right this issue is is at once just one of the most kind of esoteric arcane things but at the same time one of the most just like basic and like easy to understand issues. It's like, it's, it's tough. So, so the actual proposals, right? Like um, there, there, there are parts of it. I know really well other parts I don't know really well, which is like, it is so esoteric that even within this one proposal, right? Like it's tough to be like really an expert on, on the whole thing. And and yeah, Bonneville submitted comments. We were the only ones that, that submitted comments, and and I'd encourage people to read everybody's. And the the discussion at the board meeting was really interesting as as well. Uh, you don't always get a lot of really substantive discussion with with board members, but uh, some of the Kaiser board members like really had had read through all the comments, read through the proposal, and and I really appreciated that conversation. I think that with, with resource efficiency, I, I just think that every like the whole region has um more work to do. And I think we're doing a lot of that work on tr- trusting that everybody is going about running their business in a way that's fair and makes sense. Right. And and I think that like I said in my my opening and in all of these. Everything is changing so much and everybody is responding to it so differently that it's easy to get caught up in like these resource efficiency comments. And yeah, everything could be better. And and I encourage people to look at those comments. But I think at, at, at the base of this is it's not just resource efficiency, it's resource adequacy, it's integrated resource planning. I think that there's just a general concern in the whole industry that, um, People don't know how to make sure that everybody's being being fair and responsible in the way that they're they're setting up. And so uh, yeah, these these things are really, really interesting. And I I like to stuff like resource adequacy, for example, to hopefully get us off center on some of these topics. Oh. If you can start because by the time you get to the hour, um a lot it's it's all baked of, in. It's all yeah, I mean it's tough, right? Like you want you want people to show up set up right but if you don't have it you don't have it um yeah. and and so um i think that we we kind of use a try to try to use a pretty small lever on a pretty big issue with some of this stuff and i hope that i'm encouraged by all the the resource adequacy discussions in whack and in, in kiso because i think that's kind of the basis so that when you get to the hour um i don't know if you're not trying to solve like a different problem which i sometimes worry it's it's the the, the case with with like getting like some so, some of the the things that end up being controversial it with so, resource efficiency
1: like you frame, like you're solving a different problem and that you're using this really tiny lever to try to solve resource adequacy so yeah,
0: yeah that's
1: that's kind of my interpretation of yeah and yeah. the way you're thinking about it. interesting jason anything from reporting on the article you wanted to draw out from from either your article or russ's comments mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, well, it's really interesting to hear your comments there on the ground with that, Russ. Um, BPA did support this, but is urging KAISO to move more quickly with a phase 1B rather than waiting for phase 2. Um, And I think you're right. The KAISO board is really coming up to speed on it. It it is pretty complicated. Um, And you might know better than I, but there was issues with hydro plants failing this test. It has been some time, which I've heard about that, but is that, have you heard that still being an issue where even though they were pretty much, uh, you know, weren't leaning on, on other, uh, other BAs that there was issues with hydro because various factors, um, you know, control factors that they have, but have you heard? Yeah. And
0: and I'm not a hundred percent up on all that, but I, I think that the, the, What you end up, one of the issues that you end up running into is what it's what to give people credit for, what to give utility a a credit for, and you can see that, and I think in several people's comments that from the Kaisos' perspective, they're souped to nuts, like working on the whole thing. So, but by the time they get by the time they get there, they've got visibility about exactly how they got there, and and it's just it's natural that you wouldn't that they wouldn't have the same visibility for every other single entity. Right. And so I think that there is a risk that maybe outside of the KISO um, folks might not like some, some resources might not, it might be tough for some resources to get, get like similar treatment. Um which we should work like we should work on that we should we should keep working on this and i'm glad that they're moving forward Glad they're moving forward with this and i'm glad that they still are taking really seriously moving on to the next step and continuing to 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 fix these issues um but i think that also goes back to hopefully we can more fundamentally um create like a a level playing field or 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 faith that people are, are are on a level playing field so that uh, it's easier to come up with rules that sort of apply equally to everybody. Like, I think it's understandable why there's some of these, uh, like, like some way some of these are contentious, right? Like th- that kind of makes sense. It'd be more surprising if this if everything just worked super easily when you're trying to, you know, dovetail all these really really different uh, paradigms in terms of markets and also just. The way utilities operate uh so maybe that's a long-winded question to say like yeah that's a possibility i'm glad we're working through it um and you know i think that eventually we'll probably get there but this is both important but it's also not the whole issue essentially
2: and i see uh phase two due to kick off in july so there'll be a lot more to come on this yep. one for sure
0: yeah okay are we ready
1: we're ready for the next one
0: Yeah, I think I'm ready for some uh, typewriter. It's the perfect sound.
2: The Wall Street Journal published a long-form article by Catherine Blunt on February 18th on the increased amount of outages for electric service titled, quote, America's grid is increasingly unreliable, unquote. Quoting from the lead, quote, Large sustained outages have occurred with increasing frequency in the U.S. over the past two decades, according to a Wall Street Journal review of federal data. In 2000, there were fewer than two dozen major disruptions, the data shows. In 2020, the number surpassed 180, unquote. A utility executive executive was quoted in the piece regarding power planning, quote, We used to do resource planning on a spreadsheet. It used to be very simple. The math is just astronomically more complicated today unquote. The bulk of the article is spent focused on power supply disruptions, but there are portions that touch on the increased stress and strain to poles and wires. It also includes some great infographics. We can't hope to summarize it properly and simply encourage electric utility enthusiasts to read it since a long-form article in the Wall Street Journal on the topic will likely turn into comments from electric utility skeptics that may end up coming to you. And uh Russ, do you have any thoughts on that?
0: my my first thought uh Luji, if you can scroll up to the top um boy, I want that map right like that image or yeah like th- that image is just especially with the flickering is is just really. You don't even need the story at the point where you've got that. I think you come up with the image first, and then you're like, let we got we got to write a story about this." I'm a little I mean, jealous of that. Very
1: image. East Coast biased, though. That and image is, is very East Coast biased. The, yeah. yeah, very East Coast biased on that red. Like that. that um, but we should definitely get one made. People still make those, right? What do you call them? Neon lights, neon yeah. signs. Yeah. yeah, we could get that neon sign yeah. made.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it's it's the 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 least. I feel like I've read a bunch of. I've just read a million stories like this. And I, I probably feel that way because I'm a utility industry wonk. <laughs> so like I, I'm looking out for these stories uh, and, you know, I assume they're using like EIA data for the outages. Is, is that, did they say, or. Yeah, yeah I think they
1: noted in the article, like they're using the Sadie and safety that we all. Yeah. I, as I as mean,
0: as I as wonder if they're, I'm I, I worried they're pl- playing it a little fast and loose with, with this, um, with, with some of the information and
1: I think they're playing a little fast and loose with the narrative.
0: Yeah. And because even the information that they're talking about really talked a lot about what I, what sounded like distribution and delivery issues when I think the, the, the narrative or what they're trying to convey is that this is a sort of decarbonization uh, problem, which that's a legitimate art. Like that's, that's a real question. Like that's a, that's a real issue. But they they seem to discuss what's was is, is maybe a lack of investment or or lack of innovation or, or uh, in in the last mile sort of thing in, in in distribution, which I definitively don't work on at Bonneville Power. So <laughs> I'm curious, um, Paul Dockery, yeah. if you've got any hot takes on that.
1: Uh, Jason came off mute, and since we don't have his visual, we gotta let him go because. Oh what yeah. Just...
0: Um yeah.
2: It's usually a distribution level problem, right? Um, you know, it's funny. I just got into a, quite a debate on Twitter about this. Uh, I saw it. Did you? Yeah. yeah, I did. I love I love the Twitter spats. It's great. <laughs> yeah, I, I came under a little bit of fire. I've, you know, being in California, I obviously focused on California. I'm a little astounded out here at how unreliable our grid is. In fact, um, I just wrote up the citizen utility board, latest utility ranking, California came in 24th overall, but however, California came in 51st place on average time to restore power per customer with major event days. That's because we have so many long duration outages. Um, A big one is PSPS, uh, which really skews out because we have a lot of long outages, but we also had the August 2020 outages and you know, I've sort of been a little bit accused of blaming decarbonization. I do think, you know, the the ramping issue is the reason we have problems in California. It's very simple. The sun goes down, we don't have the generation or imports that we need. Imports are shrinking. So, and there's other factors. Uh, We dug up a document at the CPUC from 2012 where they actually told PG&E go ahead and go light on inspecting your lines because fires don't happen in North Northern California. Uh, that was you know ten years ago. Climate change does play a role, but I think slapping climate change on as a cause of these outages is a little uh, you know a little wrong. There's there's definite planning problems and capacity problems, and I don't see them getting getting much better california scored 36 overall on reliability on this and i feel like a state with our number of expertise and and wealth here that we should be doing better
1: yeah one of the things i in these type of stories and russ you, you spoke to they they do happen a lot that often the narrative components get like confused like because there are i think narratively and in people's intuition the power supply concerns are very obvious right and russ you spoke to it like these are legitimate things that maybe we should be thinking about in our planning horizon but they actually haven't caused much uh like there haven't been many power supply issues and they the ones that do get a lot of press but as the article notes the largest cause of outages in the u.s is is distribution it's you know it's the the tree hitting a wire like that is actually how people perceive and there uh in this article i think kind of can it it talks it uses data from one as uh, to talk about be a cause to talk about the other and similar with electrification like electrification is a good thing to be thinking about on a planning horizon using historic data as a reason to then talk about uh uh, your electrification being a risk for the future i think it kind of it grays an area that isn't that gray and to your point jason like psp is is a large driver through a lot of this data stuff, and that is, um, it's 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 almost it's like a fourth type of thing. It's like the risk of your dist- of under maintaining your distribution system is both not, you know, a failure of uh, component. It is preventing failure of components, causing problems. Uh, it's and and so it's there's a bunch of really wonky technical things going on here that uh, it, that comes across in. And I did want to ask you, Russ, did you watch John Oliver's segment on uh, what on last week tonight where he talked about the grid? Uh, And what did you, how would you compare this article to that?
0: Oh, I didn't watch it. I'm sorry. You didn't watch it. I'm a Paul Dockery failure at this point. Ah,
1: holy cow. It's it's good. I enjoyed it. But Um, I put them into the same camps of like they're what mainstream people will consume. So we need to be aware of them. And the Wall Street Journal article, mainstream people will consume it, and we should be aware of what is. Yeah, I, and, and,
0: and I think that you know, you know the EIA data or whatever, like the safety, like whatever they're using, it's getting worse. I wonder in in comparison to what, right? And so you're, you know, we just talked about uh, broadband, right? And I assume, you know, I maybe i'm being naive but i i figure 15 years from now stuff like that's gonna seem old right like wherever you are oh broadband there's a good chance you'll you'll have really dependable access to to yeah. um to broadband right and and so as compared to the last 30 years like i'm i i, I couldn't imagine that that things weren't getting worse but like I said on the supply side you have these really salient events Texas salient
1: good word um
0: and then you know California summer 2020 right yep. and and so those are just supply side events they're usually exacerbated by uh some sort of severe climate change like whether it's wildfire cutting off access or or uh you know people's lack of winterization of their plant, like finally coming to bite them in the, in the rear. Right. But a lot of these, I think are because of a lack of just dependability of the delivery assets and the lack of redundancy. Right. Yeah. Which um, I I think another issue is, is a, an unwillingness to sort of invest in infrastructure. And I think also part of that is because I I think that, I worry that we're not getting as much for our dollar as we used to. Right. And and so oh, it yeah. used to be easier to build things out. And um, this will be dangerous because I don't remember the source of this or anything, but. Unattributed I read, quote. I read an article <laughs> of, about um, how generally with infrastructure. And I think the, the focus of this was largely on like the, the New York subway uh Uh, costs and then also the california uh, high-speed rail costs that that compare as compared i think you would expect that in china uh or east like not necessarily just east asia but like for for large parts of china given the way that their government operates and commanding and controlling they're able to get more like track like mile per dollar or they can build a subway system for cheaper than we can here but but compared to europe uh and western europe as well like the the, the whatever the 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 numbers they had like we're pretty astounding about how much it costs in America to build something and and i think that that's an issue as well because i think a lot of this is you you, you need a different electric grid in some ways right and yeah. and it's going to be tough to tough to build that
1: yeah i listened to an unnamed podcast uh, that we may have both listened to the same one and it covered this topic extensively uh and used maybe used the article that you were talking yeah about so i feel about. even more
0: confident quoting it then i'm going to go yeah. back and get right. more detailed about quoting it in probably yeah. a minute or so
2: okay yeah. What do you think, Jason? Well, one elephant in the room that you don't hear a lot about is, you know, California is building massive amounts of backup diesel, mostly for data centers. I think we're at maybe 12 gigawatts now. And that's that's counterproductive for the environment. It's kind of productive for everything. I, one article I did, we're at 15% of the total capacity of the grid equivalent in diesel generation. So, yeah. I, all of it to to power data data centers mostly and these are in disadvantaged areas so and a lot of times these emissions don't get counted for whatever california's you know taking credit for on the clean energy front but yeah i think that's worth a mention too
0: so yeah so data center load and and you know crypto load and stuff is is uh worth talking about and but i have also like had a pause when I when I've heard that brought up as evidence of, of sort of kind of hypocrisy in California, because I, I worry that we do the opposite, which is to like, I think we should be concerned about carbon output. Right. Or or GHG output. Right. Like, including methane
1: emissions output, emissions including output, all the other emissions. Right?
0: Yeah. Which which um like we should be we should be really thoughtful and, and, and careful about things like backup diesel generation, but if they run so little and, um, and provide a reliability benefit, like I, I'd like to, sure. I just want us to worry about like what the actual emissions are on, on those things. Cause I'm, I'm personally someone who thinks that there's going to be a role for um, fast start thermal. In, in the way the grid's gonna operate in the future, irrespective of batteries and, and stuff like that. And 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 uh, uh I think we should be really thoughtful about how we do that, but I, I like a, an emissions based discussion instead of just like an installed uh capacity uh discussion. Yeah.
1: So to your point, Jason, we should be tracking those emissions, right?
2: Yeah, it's, it's, uh, we've tried to get data on how often the backup generators run. It's, it's really difficult.
0: You need but, to know. Yeah, yeah, you have to have that, right? Yeah, yep. yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. But we're running out of
1: time. We got a bunch okay. more. Yeah. And I've got
0: yeah. a, I've got a kid using the internet watching TV that I got to go take care of before too long. So, okay. Um, all right. Uh, so, um, I'd love a typewriter sound right now to signpost the next story.
1: You're doing great work, Luigi. Thank you. Thank you Sounds very good. much,
0: Luji. Uh, PG&E Corp., the parent of Pacific Gas and Electric, discussed its year-end financial results on a February 10th earnings call that made uh, news with its price tag to underground 10,000 miles of power lines in high-fire-risk areas. PG&E estimates it will cost more than $25 billion, which converts to approximately $2.5 Dollars per mile of underground transmission. This is a divergence from a 2017 white paper PG posted on its PGE Currents blog that estimated about three million dollars per mile. The utility expects to be installing 175 miles of underground cable in 2022 and 1,200 miles a year uh, underground by 2026. You can find coverage of the earnings call in both the Sacramento Bee with coverage by Dale Kassler and California energy markets with coverage by Roderick Hurdle-Branford. And uh, so, yeah, Jason, others, what do you guys think of this story? I think it's very much apropos of what we were just talking about, right?
2: Yeah, PG&E has been kind of nebulous on this. Um, when Patty Poppy came out and said, we're going to do this. Then you didn't hear much until now. Um, but it was interesting to see the focus on that. It's you know, it's going to have to happen, I think, in high fire risk areas. It is crazy expensive, um, but happy to see more movement on it. And, you know, just start in the high risk fire areas, go from there. And I think the cost is at least a million dollars per mile. It it was a million dollars per mile at one point. But when you look at the cost of these wildfires, of course, there's there's a good trade off there and uh, you know they did a little better financially um in 2021 a 102 million dollar loss compared to the 1.3 billion dollar loss in 2020 you know uh PG&E can be kind of a car wreck in progress but uh you know i think the new ceo is doing her best to get a handle on things you know we'll see yeah.
1: Yeah, and the write-up that uh, you had in California Energy Markets, Jason, it does say a rundown of the different, uh, you know, the the causes for loss, and they must have talked about it on their earnings call. And it is interesting to go through that rundown, which is, you know, last year they had a $1.3 billion loss, and they talked to um, the, uh, what is it, like $2.2 billion of uh, non-core items in their 2020 one gap earnings that include Mm -hmm. things like uh, payments for the bankruptcy case, the 2019-2020 wildfire related costs, uh, uh, investigations. And you kind of think through, oh, it's a big number. The $25 billion is a big number for underground. But if you think of all of these payouts for because of wildfires, it, uh, it is not infeasible. You could see some real benefit of that $25 billion in actual Output well, three. Put sure.
0: Yeah, and, and it, it it's good to see the numbers coming down, and it'd be great if they could find a way to make them even smaller, right?
1: Yeah. What do you think, Russ, about the possibility for technological improvements on like undergrounding transmission cable and in economies well, of scale? What do you do? You think there's something there? It well, seems- yeah.
0: I mean, I think if if I I, I mean I I just I, I would assume that if Every if it was known that every utility that, that has high voltage, like lines in general, but especially high voltage lines, or um, infrastructure that goes through these really dry areas, and the really dry areas are increasing. God, I, I would think that somebody's going to come up with solutions that that make it easier. Um, now, I think that there are tech, like there are technological solutions that can make it easier. Um, I I wonder, I I didn't dig too deep into that article, but I wonder how much they're forecasting for sort of regulatory costs or or like difficulties. It seems like they've got a pretty good mandate to get this done in California. Um, in,
1: In one of the articles, I think it was the Sacramento Bee article, they do note that they do expect these costs to be recovered
0: through rates. Yeah. Is that your question, Russ? Well, no, more about siting and access oh. and uh, like environmental impacts, et cetera. Um, yeah,
1: which, to go to your prior point about the infrastructure, the cost to do infrastructure in California versus- of, yeah. yeah,
0: and 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 that's where I think just from a public policy perspective, we don't all, here, I think in California, I would guess they've got a pretty clear mandate, right? Interesting, um, okay. And And so most of the, Public policy is kind of rowing in the same direction, and so it costs what it costs, right? But um, if if it were to, because if if you if you need that value, like electricity, then uh, you know it's then it costs what it costs, and you try to get the cost down. Uh, but I think that I, I would worry about this getting. I think one of the barriers of this being really broadly adopted outside of California is it's, you know, it's a lot of, it's a lot of work. Like it's ultimately less, it ultimately seems less invasive, but like the process of doing it is pretty invasive and you're going to be over just a ton of jurisdictions and bring in a lot of other people. And, and I think that, um, you know, having, so Russ Manifel says we should have a societal discussion about whether like, whether <laughs> or not we should do that and why can't we just do it? And the reasons that it's difficult, everybody knows. But, but uh, I, I think that that's a big barrier that, um, is, that makes it tough to, to kind of handicap how uh, much of a signal this would be for, for whether it's going to happen for other utilities. And, yep. and, and you know, have the sort of scale that, that helps helps decrease the cost.
1: Yeah, I'm really curious on that scale question. Uh, I don't see it, uh, but I'm open to being corrected. Give us some typewriter, Luigi. Love the typewriter. Thank you, Luigi. I think this is mine, right? I'm the last one? Yep. Okay. Dan Catchpole covered the pre-publication version of the 2021 power plan approved at the Northwest Power and Conservation Council's February 16th meeting. Breaking news. Luji, do you have the breaking news? Uh The soundbite that we we got last episode. Hey, you, get over here. Breaking news. The most controversial elements in the draft plan released last fall are in the pre-publication final version, which was unanimously approved by the council. The plan now goes to an ad hoc council committee. Uh, with staff who will edit it for clarity and readability, but will not change the substance. Council staff expects to publish the plan in March. With the West increasingly turning to zero carbon emitting resources, the plan forecasts 237 gigawatts of new resources by 2030 across the Western Electricity Coordinating Council region and 401 gigawatts by 2041. The 2030 total includes nearly 15 gigawatts of new natural gas, which increases to 16.5 by 2041. Decarbonization and rapid expansion of renewables epitomize how difficult the future is compared to the past, Northwest Power and Conservation Council's power planning director Ben Kujola said in an interview. Quote, one big distinction between this and previous plans is previous plans had one answer that covered about 90% of possible scenarios. This plan isn't like that, Ben said. The industry's existing models are designed for a world that increasingly is in the past and new more nuanced models are needed he said to that end staff rebuilt the council's genesis model the new version produced surprising and controversial results including slashing projected energy efficiency investments and a dramatic drop in the likelihood of power supply shortfalls forcing load shedding or blackouts thanks to clearing up's contributing editor and the underground's other Podcast ambassador Dan Ketchpole for reading through the report. We'll put a link to the article in the show notes. Please show him some love. Follow him on Twitter, and you know, just send him a thank you. Always, always appreciated.
2: Yep, Dan's doing good work. Um, you know, uh, as far as gas, you know, it's not going anywhere in, in California. It's still part of the CPUC planning. Um, you probably know California recently reduced its greenhouse gas. Gas emissions target to thirty eight million metric tons uh, will require more than twenty five thousand megawatts of clean energy and fifteen thousand megawatts of energy storage and demand response. Um, and then you know, of course, the Western grid becoming increasingly interlocked and uh, you know more uh, interchangeability or how should I say it, more dependence on each other. Um, it'll be a, a bigger issue um, and in california they're planning on keeping natural gas online through 2045 so just kind of shows you know gas still part of the mix here um and then uh that's you know with the new especially with this new target so uh some interesting developments there
1: did you have anything on this for us that you thought was uh
0: no yeah, just, to what what um jason was saying uh I, I think that's a conversation that all of the various entities need to have. Is is about the role of of thermal in in this and or possibly nuclear moving forward. And that's where, like I said, for myself, I I, I think that focusing on um, emissions versus installed capacity is is going to be um, the most helpful way to to kind of meet our goals while maintaining this energy like reliability and security that 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 we're used to um and and then yeah i think that I, I haven't been super involved in it but i'd be interested to see how this plays out with the the genesis model outcomes right i i i'm as it's great that they're I'm glad that we're working on different ways of trying trying to model this stuff when there's so much more uncertainty. I know that the outputs were not what a lot of people were expecting and and what uh you know maybe the other people working on resource adequacy for example had 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 seen in in their work and I'm just I'm, I'm excited I'm interested to see how that plays out right because I think that uh you need to get roughly on the same page about what the you know what the lay of the land is and and so i'm curious how that's what how that's how people are going to handle um the way genesis works now the assumptions and and what to do with the the uh the outcomes of of running that model
1: yeah to your point russ it it was some of the outputs were unexpected and i think a lot of the work in Probably the narrative write-up is trying to make sure that there is good context for how to use those results. Because um, I do think when they present and talk to it, they do try to articulate the, how to use the results, um, but making sure that comes through in the plan. PNUC, uh, has it did some really good presentations around how unexpected the outputs were. Uh, And I, I, of course, our friends at PNUC, who might may or may not listen to this, uh, I would celebrate their work and point you towards them for maybe some of Tomás's old analysis uh, that I thought was incredibly compelling. I know Crystal Ball probably has that in a desk drawer somewhere that she would be happy to send you.
0: Which, I mean, talking about those differences... Is great, right? I mean, it's gotcha. not like their computers work differently, or they've got an evil robot, or like <laughs> they've got a better robot or a worse robot. I mean, it's about yeah. the, the assumptions you make and and the functions that you're assuming are going to be, you know, happening based on those that you get this model, and and so hopefully everybody just really engages on talking about how that people are coming up with these really drastically different, different outcomes. And, and so we can work on what to do next.
1: Yep. Okay. Let's move it.
0: Okay. Uh, well, that's it with those stories. Let's hit the typewriter please and move on. Thank you, Luji. Uh So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we have a preview of Matt and Paul's interview with, PGP's new executive director, uh, director Mary Winkie. Take it away, Paul.
1: At Northwest Public Power Association, give me the website, Luigi. Public power is life. For 82 years, NWPPA has supported public power utilities and other associates in the greater Pacific Northwest by offering education, training, communications, government relations, and services like RFP and job postings. The job postings is probably their most hit website, I'm just guessing. In addition to public power, what else is important to NWPPA? Local control, member needs, integrity and quality products and services. Today, NWPPA proudly serves 155 member utilities and more than 325 utility industry associate members. Learn more or register for a class at nwppa.org. On your screen right now, that's nwppa.org, where public power is life.
3: Today, Paul and I are joined by Mary Winkie, the new executive director uh, for PGP or the public generating pool. Um, who generously agreed to lend her considerable expertise to a number of market topics and questions. Uh, Mary joined PGP in January after spending about 14 years holding positions of increasing responsibility and importance of Pacific Uh, Do you say Pacific Corps or Pacific Corp? Pacific Corps. All right, good. The other one is wrong. Uh, most recently, Mary was Pacific Corps Vice President of Transmission Regulation
1: and Market Policy. Mary is a graduate of Barnard College. Is it Barnard or Barnard?
4: Barnard.
1: Barnard College and Lewis and Clark Law School. She began her career at Pacific Core as an attorney and succeeds friend of the underground and Northwest public power icon, Trees Hampton as PGP's executive director. It's so good to have you, Mary. I'm very happy that you agreed to join us. So great to have you.
3: And again, welcome to Public Power Underground. You've got more history and context, Mary, on market development than just about anybody in the region. Um, from multiple perspectives as well. Uh, you were at Pacific when they were first entrance, uh, the first entrance into the EIM from outside of the Kaiso, uh, and also when they were uh, considering uh, PTO or becoming a participating transmission owner. Um, so given your level of expertise uh, on markets overall and market development, uh, what do you think we should be paying attention to as the region continues to evaluate market expansion? Um, and kind of throw in a follow- up question here, which may very well be more important at least from my perspective is what what is interesting to you uh, about this at this point?
4: So obviously, um really loaded couple of loaded questions. Um, no, there. no apologies. <laughs> you know, and I think I think uh, you know, um, I think the I think people should be really paying attention to the places where they know that kind of the fault lines have occurred in the past. And I know that you guys, Paul told me that um, Therese and Steve came on already to talk about the PGP uh, market retrospective. Um,
1: Some great and, work, and great work done by PGP.
4: Yes, it's, it's on our website in case anybody wants to um, read it or learn more, feel free to contact us. Uh, it's, we'll it's link to really- it
1: in notes. Yeah, write we'll like the show notes, yep.
4: Yeah. Um I but I think if you look across, you know, if you look at across, like w- this isn't the this isn't our first rodeo in the west. And in addition, this isn't the first rodeo across the country. So I I think really taking lessons from history and looking at kind of where we know the fault lines are and where we know the challenges are and and thinking through okay, how can we, how can we navigate through these this time? And, and so I, I think that's what people should be keeping an eye on as we go through these conversations and not getting sort of too stuck on the the outcome or the the end state. You know, like I think there's a certain key set of object, objectives and a certain fault lines that have happened in the past. And, and we need to work through those through those things sort of regardless in what context or in what form kind of the market develops, so I think I think we kind of keep an open mind to a certain extent. On what that end state looks like but really kind of focus on like I say, where we know the the um, kind of touch points are from our past. Um, That said, I also think that there's differences now. And so people should also be focusing on what those differences are. And that kind of gets to your second question about sort of what is really interesting to me. Um, because I think one of the key aspects of um, that's different now from the other, from those other efforts is this the the manner in which state energy policy has evolved um, since those efforts. And, and I think Washington is a really prime example of that. And so you have markets developing in the context of state policies that are really driving um, decarbonization and driving um, a, a more sort of granular understanding of sort of um, how, state, how states are being served and by which resources. And so I think to, to me, that's a really sort of intersection of state policy and market development is just is super fascinating um because you can have you can have state policies whose objectives are ultimately the same as some of the market objectives in terms of integrating renewables and and those sorts of things um but you could actually have the sort of implementation of the policy and the implementation of the market sort of at cross purposes a little bit so i think it's it's just it's it's just super fascinating. It's super complex. That's what I really, you know, I'm I'm super interested in. Um, you know, I'd love to kind of get into the nitty gritty there. And I think I think if we can kind of resolve some of those challenging issues um, on that intersection, I, I do think that that will sort of find a path forward. Um, so I don't know. That was kind of a long winded answer to your to your question. Um, but you know, that was actually one of the reasons that was really attracted me to uh, PGP, is that PGP is really engaged on both carbon policy and market policy. And there's a really inter- interesting intersection there that not everybody gets to kind of have the chance and opportunity to work on both. Um, so very interesting times.
1: I'm going to ask what is a, probably a naive question, but I can because I'm here. Um, there, There is also, you talk about state policies and then the market policies overlapping and, and that intersection. I think uh, that's a, a really interesting touch point. There also seems to be a trend where the state policy is explicitly uh, market Nick joining a market. Do you think that's a trend that is likely to continue? And off the top of my head, Colorado, I think uh, that is a state policy now that those utilities is, are are asked to join a market. Um, do you think that'll continue? And do you think that's going to be a trend? out here and am i missing something that's so obvious i miss a lot of obvious things mary don't uh, i'm not an expert i'm an enthusiast these are different things
4: i, I appreciate your enthusiasm um, yeah i both nevada and colorado have um statutes in place that require the utilities to join an rto by i believe 2030. um there's some off-ramps you know it's it's not sort of a mandatory no matter what um sort of requirement but I, I do think we could see more conversations about that um, in states across the West, you know, as people um, see RTOs as kind of a and, and, and moving in that direction as kind of a tool um, to achieve other state energy policies. And so I do, I do think we'll probably see more conversation on that. Um, I don't have any more insight, though, as to sort of specifics on on where and when.
1: Yeah, well, I just appreciate that the the, the Nevada was one that I had forgotten. Um, I'm going to go to another area of topic. There are, unless, Matt, you want to ask a follow-up on that one.
3: I did, and the the, the pause there was intentional, just in case we have to cut this, uh, and Mary doesn't want to answer it. But um, one (laughs) of the things that is especially interesting to me is uh, with respect to um, what Paul just brought up. Um, and state legislation, uh, geared toward mandating certain action with, with regard to market development and, um, thinking back to some of the recent efforts in the Western resource adequacy program and, uh, the issues with regard to state PUCs and, and, uh, their frustration, um, uh, around, uh, 205 filing rights and an inability to, to control the program or, or. Uh, take a take a greater role um, with respect to governance uh, within the program itself. Is it, I'd be interested to hear if uh, you had any thoughts around whether those types of actions at the state level, the legislation in particular, um, would be counterproductive um, given that those entities like eWeb that that uh, really do value local control, but also are extremely in favor of more of an organized. Move towards more organized markets, uh, but at the same time, not necessarily interested in seeing uh, state PUC control over um, how we participate in those markets. And so mm-hmm. there's there's a there's a disconnect there. Um,
4: there is right, and I mean it. It it is a little bit odd because state state jurisdiction doesn't extend to the you know wholesale energy market and wholesale transmission. So so it is sort of this odd kind of juxtaposition of the state seeing joining an RTO as sort of a tool to meet its other state policies and and find efficiencies and things like that. Um, but the tool itself is not really a state tool. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean I think I think that I think that the the question that I would ask has to do with whether or not that's really the most effective way to encourage an RTO in the West through state policy. You know, I mean, I I, I kind of feel like there's there's numerous ways to approach state policy. One is to say thou shalt join an RTO. Um, another way might be to put policies in place that that encourage RTO. Development or participation without kind of kind of being such a such a direct type policy would kind of be how I would think about it.
0: Thanks, Paul and Matt and Mary for coming on the talk and that great interview. Subscribe to Public Power Underground and make sure you don't miss the bonus episode next week, which includes a lot of talk about markets, book clubs. And another intermission game. Next up, we're we're tl;dring our way through the news in a segment we're calling sound Bites, Thanks to the original five star reviewer and commenter Ben Ulrich.
1: So I got a note from Ben. He he sent along a screenshot of his five-star review thank you ben uh he also wanted me everyone to know that he is too lazy to read anything in his news feed so he lets us curate the news for him his tag for the segment is a segment where we tldr our way through the news and give you sound bites so you can decide if you want to read more thanks for the name ben and uh it is it is it's work to watch um and a little nervous that you're allowing us to curate your news but uh, i'm not nervous okay. if you let news data curate your news.
2: That's our business. That is
1: News Data's business.
0: And I just want everybody to know that for the TLDR segment, if you don't read this, just know that if you had read these articles, they probably would reinforce what you already think. So be calm. Exactly.
1: That's exactly what we look for here.
2: Like any good news story, right?
0: Like any good news story. (laughs) Are you ready, Russ? I think I'm ready. I don't know if I'm ready. We'll find out.
1: Okay, this is sound Bites, a segment where we TLDR our way through the news and give you the sound bites so you can decide if you want to read more. I'm Paul Dockery.
0: And I'm Russ Manefeld,
1: And we're curating, curating the, the soundbites. Sound bite. really? In fish news, biologists from three agencies report that the number of northern pike in Lake Roosevelt is diminishing, especially in the lower part of the 150-mile-long reservoir closest to Grand Coulee Dam.
0: The downward population trend is confirmed across different methods being used to monitor and eradicate the invasive species. It's especially good news for a coalition of agencies trying to prevent the voracious predator fish from migrating to the Columbia River's anadromous zone, where where they could prey on juvenile salmon steelhead listed under the Endangered Species Act.
1: The anadromous zone. We need a segment called the anadromous zone. What is this? Did we just name this segment for next week? Are we going to call this segment the anadromous zone? I don't know. We did I don't not that do that. It at all yeah. fits, but I love that name. I had no idea it was a thing. A big hydroelectric base and decades of conservation and clean energy policies on the books pushed Northwest states to near the top of a national ranking of state electric utility performances based on affordability, reliability, and environmental responsibility.
0: The study, Electric Utility Performance, a state-by-state data review conducted by the Citizens Utility Board of Illinois ranked Washington, Idaho, and Oregon in the top five of overall utility performance with Montana coming in at 14th. And as you've probably heard earlier in this episode, Jason does not live in one of those states. He does not.
1: The Northwest Power and Conservation Council is considering undertaking an exhaustive analysis of what removing the lower Snake River dams could mean for the Northwest energy system.
0: Weeding under the political issue could put the nonpartisan council in an awkward position. Council members acknowledge this while discussing the topic during their February 16th meeting.
1: An analysis by the Council would only consider the dams as energy resources. It would be limited to looking at how removing the dams could affect the Columbia River's hydropower system and the regional power grid's flexibility and reliability, and what replacement resources would be needed. The study would not look at potential effects on fish and wildlife, the dam's economic viability, or any other issues outside the regional power system. It's a constrained analysis. It looks like there's uh, obviously a study in clearing up about it this week.
0: Next news from the Potomac. A divided FERC approved two statements on February 17th, revising policies for considering proposed natural gas infrastructure with expanded consideration of economic and environmental impacts, including greenhouse gas emissions.
1: FERC adopted an interim GHG policy statement specifying that proposed projects with GHG emissions of 100,000 metric tons annually or higher would trigger an environmental impact statement. FERC said that in quantifying emissions, it would include construction and operating emissions, and it may include, quote, may include emissions from upstream production and downstream consumption.
0: FERC also updated its 1999 policy statement on certifying new interstate pipelines and other facilities. The
1: 1999 statement relied on precedent agreements between developers and shippers to establish project need. Under the revised statement, the commission may consider other evidence of need, including demand projections, capacity, utilization rates, potential cost saving to customers, regional assessments, and statements from state regulators or local utilities, FERC
0: said. Turlock Irrigation District is moving forward on a five-megawatt pilot project to install solar panels over canals, which could provide energy while protecting water from evaporation. I grew up in central Arizona, and this is what we would call a classic twofer. They were recently awarded a $20 million state grant for the project.
1: Finally, California energy officials this week approved more than $10 billion in grants for projects that will advance electric vehicle charging technology and build cleaner alternatives to diesel-fired mobile generators. $2
0: $2 million is provided to help standardize charging equipment and coordinate charging to occur at off-peak times, the Grant Award says. Currently, charging connectors do not have a solid market for grid integration. The market is split between proprietary and public charging solutions, the Grant says.
1: The California Energy Commission, or CEC, also approved $1.2 million to test a solar-plus storage system that's supposed to be less expensive than
0: alternatives. About 2 million, $2.7 million is earmarked to develop a method to harvest heat from California's geothermal fields without extracting waters.
1: Interesting, interesting. And $3 million is provided to build a mobile generator that uses hydrogen fuel cells and batteries rather than fossil fuels.
0: Heat harvester could be a segment as well in the future. Oh, heat, heat harvester, mind. the
1: hot takes, heat harvester. Nice. Oh, this is great stuff.
0: Thanks to Public Power Underground's production partners at News Data for letting us use their leads and thanks to Ian for compiling them. Now back to the crew for uh to close out the episode.
1: That's our curation of the, you're leaving me hanging here. Ready?
0: Oh you're, sorry. Ready, Russ? you're leaving <laughs> me hanging. We're doing <laughs> it. This that, is going really on. well. Okay. <laughs>
1: you moved on. That's, That's our, our curation curate. of oh, the soundbites. Oh, oh,
0: sound bites. That, that that sounded not at all like we were trying to find out what the other person was going to say.
1: So Yeah, no, I think Anadromous Zone. I don't know if it at all works with the TLDR segment, but it's such a good name.
0: Yeah. Okay, we're ready. Uh, great. I guess before we head out, any of those stories you want to dig into deeper, folks? Or...
1: I find the the Snake River Dam removal analysis by the council, it doesn't make it to the full like regular public power desktop because it's just an announcement of the study, but I think it's good that they're working on something. Curious what your take, Do you, are you allowed to have a take on that, Russ?
0: I don't have a take on it. Um, I'm just going to let you know that right now. Uh, okay. What I will say is I have a meta take. Uh, I've, so I've harvested heat for multiple stories, and I'm going to turn it into a meta hot take. So we're going is, to the metaverse with Facebook? Is, <laughs> which is that with that and, and the FERC topic uh, going back to my theme of understanding as, you know, as, as a bunch of different folks, like what are we trying to achieve? Like what, what is our main objective? Like there's no easy answers. And so I think there's a couple of different stories about how uh, you know, if you're, you're in a zero sum game, you got to find a way to just figure out what are we going to try to accomplish? So um, let's, Let's all just do that.
1: Yeah, anything you had, Jason, that you found interesting in those that rundown?
2: Yeah, the uh, you know, I've been covering FERC for a long time. It's been interesting seeing them move in this direction. There's a lot of questions about their legal authority as far as greenhouse gas emissions. One comment I read from Joseph Kelleher, who's the former uh, uh, chairman of FERC, you know under uh, a Republican. Uh, Said so he, he doesn't think FERC has legal authority t- to do this. I think you'll see it going to court and a long, complicated, um, you know, proceeding on that. But uh, yeah, the public interest standard, according to Kelleher, is fairly narrow. So uh, they're they're definitely um, pushing the limits, and it'll be really interesting to see what happens.
1: Yeah, continued continued fight on the horizon. Oh, yeah. um, I, I also I just I just inserted at the very last minute the article about the solar over irrigation canals, uh, the twofer, as Russ called it. Yeah. Um, I find that like it's but, you know, I like to have hopeful stories in here <laughs> and while it's probably more capital intensive to do that type of stuff, I hope there is some economic case because it it probably is a good use of like land. It's good land use. It feels
0: like a, it feels like a no brainer forehead slapper. I mean, I guess I don't know how much um, area that includes, but I suspect the area is going to be a product of the, you know the the length and the width of those canals is is my my other it, hot take on that. That's a
1: hot take on that one. Yeah, uh, yeah. I will say Jason Gizmodo I found this uh, story first in Gizmodo because they have a way hotter take and like a like a way more clickable title. I think maybe you need to work okay. on like the title on this one for news data was Yeah. You know, All right. right.
0: I guess yeah is is sorry is the trouble bringing the power back to load? I mean, I'm trying to find out it's a
1: capital, it's a capital cost. It's more expensive to install these on irrigation canals. Right. right. That's the, that's the, like, you have to pay more for the the frames, right? That's why you don't just do this all the time. It's more expensive. And yeah. yeah.
2: I I like the fact that it really cuts down on water evaporation. So that's a a great side benefit.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, we got it. We got to get out of here. You got to, we're way past time. We've
0: been doing this a lot. Okay. Let's move on here. So, okay. That's all the news we're covering this week. The bonus episode with the full interview with Mary Winky will be published March 3rd. The next regularly scheduled episode will be recorded March 14th and published on the 17th to make sure you don't miss it. You can sign up for an unintrusive newsletter with links to all the ways to consume this fascinating content at publicpowerunderground.substack.com. Otherwise, you can subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcast, or your favorite podcast app.
1: Russ, you did a great job. Great cold open. A wonderful job hosting us. Did, do you feel valued and appreciated?
0: Uh, I I do. Yeah, it feels good. pretty good. Yeah, it's, I wasn't expecting it, but you know what? Like, I feel feel pretty good about this.
2: Good. How about you, Jason? Do you feel valued and appreciated here? I do, even with my technical problems. Sorry about that, but I'll. I'll make sure next week to get that camera fixed. Yeah. Thanks for trudging through. Yeah, yeah.
1: Luigi, turn your video on. Do you feel valued and appreciated, Luigi? You glad? I do. You glad, yes. glad to be here. Yes. <laughs> yes. Thank yeah. you. All right. Yes, yeah, great to have you.
0: As always, send any news, questions, opinions, corrections, or complaints to Paul on Twitter at power at a power manager. Or if you're a friend of the underground, you can send any of us a note. You don't have to be subscribed to News Data's weekly newsletters to get this podcast, but it sure makes a podcast a lot more, uh, makes a lot more sense. Thanks all for this week, and thanks for tuning in.
4: Roll on, enthusiasts, roll on, roll on.
0: Roll on.
1: Your public Power Underground is a production of Klatskin IPUD and news data. The views expressed here are own and not the official views of Klatskin IPUD, news data or the organization of the guests also appearing on Public Power Underground. That means it were Russ's opinions, not BPA's. Just to underscore that fact, right, Russ? Yeah, he's nodding his head. Public Power Underground is public power and public power adjacent news from a power department's perspective. The alliteration coming through, Russ is right, that is our the highest form. We don't like our puns, we like our alliterations. It's written and directed by Klatskin Utilities Power Department, led by me, Paul Dockery, and it's edited by and published by the stellar team at Pioneer Utility Resources, led by associate producer Sarah Wooden. Our theme song, Roll On Enthusiast, was rewritten, performed, and recorded by Aaron Gillery and Ian Bledsoe. Special thanks to our celebrity guest host, Russ Manifell for participating in this week's episode. Public Power Underground for electric utility enthusiasts. Public Power Underground, it's work to watch!
0: Sometimes it's a bust.